My name is Pastor Scott, and it truly is an honor to bring God's Word to you this morning. We'll be looking at Joshua chapter 7, so if you want to turn in your Bibles there while I'm giving you a bit of an introduction. It was the 1930s in Chicago, and it was the height of the Depression. Marsha Weisenfeld's grandparents owned a small country grocery store, and one of their regular customers was a charming man who seemed to be the center of attention every place he went. Though she didn't know his name, Marsha's grandmother admired how that man embraced everybody he knew. And he would send food baskets to poor people and pay people's rent and help other people with their troubles. Marsha's grandma was so struck by the innate decency that she actually told her husband that he needed to be more like this uh, man who was her favorite customer. She knew that one day this kind stranger would be recognized by the world for his deeds. And she was right. One day, Marsha's grandma picked up the morning newspaper, and there on the front page was this man's picture, the picture of her hero. And under his picture was his name, Al Capone. I think that's a reminder that things are not always what they seem, and that people we see, uh, but we don't know all that well, may not be as good as we assume they are. But when we read the Bible, God has written in these pages things that we don't often see and things that tell us the whole story so that we can learn from them. Winston Churchill, in a speech in 1948, said, those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Today, we're going to be looking at Joshua 7, which is a very blunt chapter about sin and the consequences of sin. Let me set the context for you by going back into chapter 6. The Israelites have crossed over the Jordan River right after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, and they begun the conquest of the promised land. God has promised them victory, and he has promised to be with them every step along the journey. And things really started very well for Israel. Their first conquest was the mighty city of Jericho, and it really was more of a fortress that people lived in. It was uh, made of stone and the walls were at least 13 feet high and 6 feet wide, and it was backed by a watchtower that was 28 feet tall. Yet Israel defeated Jericho and knocked the walls down. Okay, to be a little bit more accurate, God defeated Jericho and God knocked the walls down. It didn't happen through a battle, but by the Israelites obeying God's instructions, instructions that made absolutely no sense from a military point of view. They were to march around this impenetrable wall uh, multiple times over the course of a week and then blow their trumpets and shout. That's the background, the conquest right before the story that we see today. And in chapter 7, something goes desperately wrong. So let's read this chapter to find out what that was and then what we can learn from it. Joshua chapter 7. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, that was the next city that they were to conquer, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, 
but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up from there, from the people, and they fled from the, before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening, he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we would have been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things that they have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Before the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And now tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and two hundred shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing fifty shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep 
and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. Going back before the battle, Joshua had given very clear instructions to all the Israelites about the plunder of the city of Jericho, which God had miraculously delivered into their hands. In keeping with Jewish worship, the first and the best of the plunder was to be given to the Lord. And that's why the plunder of Jericho was off limits, being the first city that they had taken. We know that Joshua had dedicated everything in that city to the Lord, but we also know from the very first verse of chapter 7 that Achan had disobeyed. He essentially stole from God. But Joshua doesn't know this yet. So he simply continues the conquest of the promised land, sending some spies up to the next city. They report that this next city is going to be pretty easy. We only need to send a few men, two or 3,000. But these soldiers were defeated, and 36 of them lost their lives. The Israelites had just defeated this mighty walled city of Jericho and burned it to the ground, and everyone in the land has now heard their, uh, what they have done, and they believe that the Israelites are unbeatable. And then this little skirmish turns into a national disaster. Men die at the hands of a far weaker enemy. And the spies said, send two or 3,000 men. Joshua even went high and sent 3,000, just to be sure. And they were soundly defeated. A few months um, late, uh, well, let me back up just a minute here. I want to tell you just a little bit of an illustration about uh, being defeated in an upset kind of a way. This was a few months after a national championship team of debaters from Harvard had come back to campus with their trophy. They faced their toughest opponent yet. It was a group of prison inmates from New York. The showdown took place at the Eastern Correctional Facility in New York, a maximum security prison where the convicts can take courses that are taught by a nearby college named Bard College, and the inmates had formed their own debate team. They decided they're, they're going to invite Harvard's national championship debate, debate team for a competition. And at the end, a three-judge panel concluded that the team of inmates had raised some strong arguments that the Harvard team had failed to consider and declared the team of prisoners the victors. Well, what was Joshua's reaction after this happened? Because remember, he doesn't know that Achan has sinned. He doesn't know what's happened. And so Joshua turns immediately to God, throws himself to the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant, and begins to pray. He prayed what could be considered a self-centered prayer. Let me give you what I call the PSP. That's the Pastor Scott paraphrase. Beginning in verse 7. God, why have you brought us here? Was your plan just to give us into the hands of our enemies and destroy us? Wouldn't it have been better just to stay on the other side of the border? God, our soldiers turned and ran away. 
And now all of our enemies are going to hear about this. They're going to come against us all together and wipe us off the face of the earth. What are you going to do about this? It actually sounds like a very defeatist prayer, assuming that the worst is going to happen. They all think that God has deserted them, maybe even thinking that God has played a cruel joke on them. But at least Joshua did turn to God in prayer in his desperation. Have you ever felt that way? Uh, Abandoned by God, alone, in danger, defeated. Maybe even you felt like God tricked you. Have you felt like saying, okay, God, I told, you told me what to do. You commanded me to obey, and I did what I was supposed to do. Where are you in the middle of all of this? If you've ever felt that way, you're not alone, because that's exactly how Joshua feels. I love God's response. He says, Joshua, get off your face. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? Stop feeling sorry for yourself, Joshua. Quit wallowing in self-pity and this poor me nonsense. There is sin here. That's the problem, and you've got to deal with it. And then God gives Joshua detailed instructions about how to to deal with this sin and make amends and, and to get back on track. Sometimes God is that blunt with us, too. You're sinning. Yes, your life is a mess, and the reason is because you're fooling around with something that I've commanded you not to do. Get off your face and deal with it so that you and I can be in a relationship again, and so that I can bless you and fight your battles for you and bring you freedom and victory and accomplish my will through you. And sometimes it isn't all that simple. It's not black and white, just like it wasn't for Joshua. Because remember, he didn't know that Achan had sinned. He didn't know that Achan had stolen the plunder. Achan wasn't even one of the 36 men that were killed. And Joshua certainly wasn't the reason for the nation's sudden loss of heart. This seemed very complex and difficult. But God cut cut right through all that and said, Hey, there is sin here. Let's deal with it. Sometimes it isn't as dramatic as that defeat in AI. Maybe your life isn't a complete mess, but you also know that it isn't as good as it could be. We fail to recognize that we're going through life in our own strength and not in God's, and so we miss out on all that He desires for us. It isn't always that life falls apart or maybe that we can't see any good in our lives, but nevertheless, we realize that we are missing out on God's best. Sin destroys our fellowship with God, and it removes His blessing until we are reconciled with God and forgiven by Him. This is why our lives often fall short of of what God desires for us, because we don't deal with sin when we should. We rationalize it. Maybe we look around at other people and say, we're not as bad as them, or we look at the standard that society has set for right and wrong and instead of looking at what God has said in His Word. And we decide that what we're doing isn't really hurting anybody. Maybe it's hurting me, but I'm not hurting anybody else. And then we go through life with little power, without much joy, and without knowing the fullness and goodness of walking in a relationship with God. And we end up merely existing instead of living life to the full as God desires for us. It's time for that to stop. 
It's time for us to get off of our face and deal with the sin in our lives. When it comes right down to it, the cause of all bad things is sin. Now, it's not always the sin that you have personally committed, so X, Y, and Z has happened, or that every bad thing in your life is a punishment for a particular sin that you've committed. But our world is contaminated. There's pain and grief and rejection, tears and heartache, and it's all because of sin. Now, here's the great news. That's not the way it's going to be in heaven. Now, we know there's not going to be sin in heaven, but have you also thought that the effects of sin will not be in heaven? But the families of those 36 men suffered, and the entire nation of Israel suffered. And all because of what? Sin. The sin of one man affected the whole nation. The consequences were felt by everyone. That's not a message that we enjoy hearing. We prefer to live in our fantasy world where sin is, our sin is nobody else's business and that it only affects us, and even then it isn't really that bad. Billy Graham was once asked, <clears throat> I can understand why God says it's wrong to do things that hurt others, but what about things that don't hurt anyone? I don't see why they ought to be labeled as sin. And here's the answer that Dr. Graham gave. You're right up to a point. Anything we do hurt, that hurts others is a sin in God's eyes. If you look at, at what is forbidden by the Ten Commandments, for example, you'll discover that most things on the list deal with sins that hurt others. Murder, lying, stealing, adultery, and so forth. But this isn't true of all the Ten Commandments. The last, for example, forbids covetousness. That is a deep yearning for something that belongs to someone else. But covetousness isn't an outward action. It's something that goes on only in our hearts and our minds. Nor does it apparently hurt anybody else, unless, of course, we allow it to lead to something else like cheating or stealing. And yet God still labels it a sin. Why is this? The reason is because every sin you commit hurts someone, including you. If you allow covetousness to take root in your soul, for example, it will hurt you and turn you into a self-centered, greedy person. Every sin hurts someone, even if it's only ourselves. That's the end of his quote. If only we had a clear taste of what life would be like without our sin, even our sins that we don't think are hurting other people. That's what I really want you to understand, is that God's way is always better. You know what it's like to carry a secret sin. It's a heavy burden. We even have an expression in our culture when we say, wow, it feels good to get that off my chest or off my shoulders, which describes the relief we feel when we let others in on our secret struggles and allow them to walk beside us to overcome those. We need to let it go. Give up the areas of life that are sinful and give them over to God and ask the Holy Spirit for freedom and power to resist, to let a fellow Christian come alongside and support and encourage and counsel and, yes, even hold accountable. I could go on and on about how awful sin is and about how bad we are for doing it and how much we deserve to be punished. But this morning, I'd rather talk about how much better it is to do things God's way. How much better it is to be free from that than to be in bondage to sin. 
How much sweeter it is to walk through life with a clean conscience instead of one plagued by guilt. And how much greater is communion with God than self-sufficiency. And so I plead with you to leave behind those secret sins. Leave it at the cross of Jesus. Because it's very simple and very plain in Scripture. Sin destroys and Jesus forgives. You and I have a choice of how to walk and I encourage you to choose life. I know that isn't always easy, and I know there are all kinds of reasons that we often give why we shouldn't confess a secret sin to God, but let me be completely blunt. Those reasons are not valid. Yes, it's hard, but all the reasons not to give our sin over to God are excuses that paralyze us from being obedient, and they rob us of the joy and life that God wants us to have. Let's talk a little bit about Achan's confession. Well, it's sort of a confession. Much of the rest of this chapter describes that very long process of identifying who the guilty party was. Now, why do you think God did it that way? I don't know exactly, but I wonder if it wasn't God's way of giving Achan every chance to confess, to come forward on his own before he was the only one left standing. Can you imagine how Achan felt as that process went on, as it got closer and closer until he was caught, the last man standing, literally? I wonder, and this is just pure speculation on my part, what might have happened if Achan had stepped forward earlier? Would he have met with the same fate? I don't know in Achan's case, but I do know about today. The sooner in you and I face our guilt, the better it is for us. When we lie, when we cover up and pretend that it isn't so bad or let somebody else take the blame for what we've done, it only makes things worse. When we hold on to our sin and refuse to give it up, refuse to let the Holy Spirit come and cleanse us, we sink deeper deeper into the sin and we walk farther away from God. I don't think Achan confessed as much as he got caught. And I think that's what made the difference. Achan's sin wasn't the simple taking of things that he shouldn't have taken. When God first speaks to Joshua back in verse 11, he tells us what's at the heart of the sin. Israel has violated my covenant. In other words, God says that what happened was that fellowship had been destroyed between God and his people. Let me read to you something that I read in a commentary this week. It's fairly short says, the term to act faithlessly describes a highly serious, treacherous breach of trust between God and Israel. In this case, disloyalty amounts to stealing Yahweh's money right out of the offering plate. That's a pretty blunt definition, isn't it? I think that's a very healthy way for us to look at our sin as a rejection of our relationship with God. We tend to think that it isn't such a big deal. Oh, it's only a little lie. It's just an image on a computer screen. It's not gossip, it's information. Or, well, he or she hurt me first, so I have a right to get even. But when we learn to see our sin for what it really is, a rejection of God, a turning of our back on his love and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, then we start to see it through God's eyes. And then we learn to lean on him for help to overcome temptation instead of giving in. 
as I was reviewing this this past week, and I was looking at this man, Achan, and you look at his character, you don't think what an evil, desperately wicked person this was. He just kind of seems like a normal guy who got caught up in something he shouldn't have done. And my question was, how could this happen to a nice guy from a good family? In verse 21, Achan tells us how he got caught up in his sin, and it's worth reading again. When I saw, I coveted, and I took them. The process hasn't changed in all these years. Achan saw, he wanted, he took. The same thing happens to us. We see, we desire, we sin. That's how temptation works. And that's how we get caught up in things that are wrong. First, we become aware of the possibility. Then we feel the desire. And then we find ourselves doing the wrong thing. And isn't it true that once you've done it, it's easier to do it the next time it's easier to do at the time after that. Let me give you an illustration about how we should stay away from these things. There were three men that were applying for a a job driving a truck over a mountain pass. And the first guy said, I'm such a good driver that I can come within just one foot of the edge without losing control. And the second guy said, oh yeah, well, I can come within six inches of the edge and not lose control. So the man doing the hiring looked at the third man and he asked him how good of a driver he was. And his reply was, well, I'm a good enough driver to know not to drive close to the edge at all. I stay as far away from danger as possible. We need to do the same thing. We have to make changes in our lives to not go to the places where we shouldn't go or to be around people that bring us down or to watch images or movies that we shouldn't be looking at, or the websites and the social media that we browse. Don't go to places where you're tempted. Get away, whatever the cost is. And don't drive close to that edge. Stay as far away as possible. Let's talk now about the consequence of sin. Joshua confirms that that confession, and then he retrieves the plunder from Achan's tent, and he lays it out before the Lord. And now comes the part that we really don't like. Achan is destroyed. He is killed because he violated the terms of the covenant. He knew this was the consequence because Joshua had forewarned them all in the last chapter. In verses 24 and 25, let me read these to you again. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen and donkeys and sheep, and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones, and they burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now this text isn't really clear on exactly what happened. It says that Israel stoned him, which is singular. And then it says that they stoned and burned them, which obviously is plural. And many interpreters believe that this means that all of Achan's family was stoned along with him. But I was intrigued in my study to find that Jewish scholars reach a different conclusion. They look back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, 
which clearly states that children are not to be put to death for their father's sins. And then the Jewish scholars conclude that the plural them refers to the plunder and the animals and the tent and the other things that have been taken. But we need to remember that the sin of the individual does affect those around them. There are no victimless crimes and there are no private sins. Knowledge of sin may be kept secret, but the impact of sin is never secret. If you're struggling with a man being stoned to death for merely taking some plunder, then I think you've already forgotten that 36 men died because of what he did. 36 wives lost their husbands. 36 families are now without their father for the rest of their lives. No, Achan's sin affected many people, deeply changing the lives of three dozen families. And at the very least, it does remind us that if Achan's family did perish, they did so as guilty accomplices, as people who knew about the stolen items buried underneath their family tent and went along with it. I mean, they had to know, right? How can you bring that much plunder back to your family tent lift the edge of the tent up, dig a hole, bury it, and not have your family know. So even Aiken's family members were not innocent bystanders. And that brings me back to my main point, is that God's way is better. It is a way of life and not death. When we sin, something dies, and God wants life for us. But there is hope. The Israelites named that place the Valley of Achor, which means the Valley of Trouble. It served as a constant reminder to them of the consequences of breaking the covenant of God. But I want you to listen to this verse here in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. This is God speaking to the children of Israel. He says, There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Achor, that same valley, a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. God will make the valley of trouble into a door of hope. God can and will bring life out of death. Let me share a few verses of hope with you. From Joel chapter 225, God says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Deuteronomy chapter 29 uh, Chapter 4, verses 29 and 30. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, God says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then in Joel chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. And that's what he wants to do this morning. He wants us to come before him in confession and repentance and allow him to cleanse us 
and make us new and keep us from death. I want to ask you to do that, to invite him to seek out your heart and reveal to you the places of hidden sin and then bring them before him to cleanse you and set you free. I'm going to be doing this also as I've been doing this week in preparation for today. I want to do it with you. Why? Because I want to choose life. I want to walk in holiness and I want God to convict me of my sin and purify me and make me righteous in his sight. God's way is always better. Living a holy life is better than living a life of sin. Let's pray. Our Father, we come before you this morning having read uh, a very heavy story, but one that is true. One in which warnings were given, commands were given, and then warnings were given as to what would happen if they were disobeyed. Yet disobedience was chosen and it was kept in secret. And instead of affecting just one person, it affected an entire nation and ended up with people dying. Father, in our own hearts, there are times when we try to keep things secret, when we try to look like we're better than we really are. Father, you've told us that if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But you also just as clearly say that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we know what is required of us. We also know that we can never meet your standard, but that you have done it for us. Father, I pray that many people today will take seriously this story that they will look into their hearts and ask your spirit to convict them of anything that they are trying to keep hidden and confess it and come and live in life, a full life with you. In Jesus' name, amen.